Are you trying to squeeze the starting solid food stuff into your already busy schedule? Well, I have an all-in-one done-for-you solution that's going to take the guesswork out of feeding your baby. My online program is called Baby Led Weaning with Katie Ferraro. It contains all of my baby led weaning training videos, the original 100 First Foods content library, plus a 100-day meal plan with recipes like the exact sequence of which foods to feed in which order. So if you want to stop trying to piece all this feeding stuff together on your own, I would be honored if you would join me inside of the program. You can get signed up at babyledweaning.co slash program. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. There is no contraindication if you've got a cleft palate or a cleft lip for, uh, you know, learning-based feeding. If they've got the mechanical dexterity to introduce food into your mouth, given that the portions are the correct size, we always want to make sure that, you know, whether it's grapes, you're cutting up those grapes really small, you're cutting up, you know, longitudinally as opposed to horizontally. So as long as the size of the bolus or the size of the food is appropriate for that child's age, then yeah, there's really no contraindication. Cleft lip alone, where it doesn't affect the palate, doesn't affect the gum line, feeding should not be an issue. Breastfeeding should not be an issue. Sucking should not be an issue. All the functional aspects of feeding should not be an issue with an isolated cleft lip. I've done over 100 palate repairs over the 12 years I've been here, and we start purees and solids uh, around six months of age, and we've never had a problem, never had an issue, never had a child go down the wrong pipe or aspirate. Essentially, it's just making sure that they have the specialty feeder so that they can have the adequate amount of liquids. And from a solid standpoint, there really is nothing in regards to preparation. It's whatever the baby's comfortable taking, whatever they like. Hey there, I'm Katie Ferraro, registered dietitian, college nutrition professor, and mom of seven specializing in baby led weaning. Here on the Baby Led Weaning Made Easy podcast, I help you strip out all of the noise and nonsense about feeding, leaving you with the confidence and knowledge you need to give your baby a safe start to solid foods using baby led weaning. Well, hey guys, and welcome back. Today we're talking about baby led weaning for babies with cleft lip, cleft palate, or cleft lip and palate. Now, while these conditions are very rare, there are a lot of resources out there that will make blanket statements and say things like, baby led weaning is not indicated for, or it's contraindicated in the following conditions, and then they'll have a list of things, which almost always includes cleft palate and sometimes even cleft lip. So I wanted to talk to an expert in the field and see if this is really true. Like, can babies with cleft palate if they have a repair of the cleft palate, really not do baby led weaning and why? So July is when I wanted to do the interview because it's also National Cleft and Craniofacial Awareness Month. So my guest today is Vikash K. Modi, MD. Dr. Modi is an associate professor and chief of pediatric otolaryngology at the Head and Neck Surgery Center at New York Presbyterian Hospital and Weill Cornell Medical Center. He's the co-director of the Cornell Cleft and Craniofacial Team and Cornell Velopharyngeal Center. So Dr. Modi is going to help answer some questions about transitioning to solid foods for babies with cleft lip and cleft palates. Here's Dr. Modi. Well, Dr. Modi, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. All right. So for those out there who are not familiar with cleft lip or cleft palate, can you briefly explain this condition and how common are clefts? Sure. All right. So craniofacial anomalies in general have a one in 200 incidence, but cleft lip without a cleft palate has about an incidence of one in 1,000 live births. 
cleft palate alone has an incidence of about one in 2,000 live births. The male to female ratio for cleft lips is two to one. And for cleft palates, it is one to two. This is interesting. One to two male to female? Cleft lip, male to female is two to one. And cleft palate, the ratio is male to female is one to two. Ah, interesting. And it's highest among Native Americans, followed by Asians, followed by Caucasians, and followed by African-American or Blacks. All right. So July is National Cleft and Craniofacial Awareness Month. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that your team does and what types of children and families do you support? So I am at Cornell in New York City in Manhattan, and I'm the co-director of the Wild Cornell Craniofacial Team and Cleft Team. And uh, we treat children with all sort of congenital anomalies of the oral cavity, the nose, the mouth, the eyes, even cranial vault, people that have uh, premature suture lines, and the most common being cleft lip and cleft palate. Sometimes it can be associated with a small jaw or micrognathia, and those children will have what we call pure Roban sequence. Uh, so there's a full spectrum. Uh, some are associated with syndrome, some are not associated with syndrome. So that definitely affects the feeding and swallowing, depending if it's syndromic or non-syndromic. And part of my ignorance, but are cleft lip and cleft palate, is this genetic? Are there risk factors for them? What causes this? That's a great question. So a lot of it is can be genetic and some of it is not genetic. So if you have two unaffected parents and you have one child with a cleft parent, there's a 4.4 chance of the second child developing a cleft lip or palate. A cleft palate alone, if one child is affected with a cleft, there's a 2.5% chance. If one parent is affected with a cleft, there's a 3.2% chance that a cleft lip or palate can occur. So, you know, there is some genetic component, but then we also see it where there's no family history at all of cleft lip and palate, and those kids can also develop one, and that's just spontaneous. So it's not thought that there's something that happens during pregnancy or that causes it. It's just something we don't understand? It's something that we're still sort of working out. There are medications that if you take while you're pregnant can have a higher incidence of having cleft lip and palate, just like there are syndromes you can get if there are certain sort of vitamin deficiencies and or if you're taking medications during pregnancy, that can affect it. But that's usually not the most common cause. So parents of babies with cleft lip or cleft palate who have struggled with breast and possibly bottle feeding, they anticipate that these feeding challenges will continue when their baby is ready to begin solid foods. Are these concerns validated? And what sort of food challenges might a six-month-old baby that you typically see have, just so parents can be aware of what may be coming down the pike? So first, I think it's important to differentiate cleft lip alone from cleft lip and palate, from okay. cleft palate alone. Cleft lip alone, where it doesn't affect the palate, doesn't affect the gum line, feeding should not be an issue. Breastfeeding should not be an issue. Sucking should not be an issue. All the functional aspects of feeding should not be an issue with an isolated cleft lip. If it's a cleft lip and a palate or just a cleft palate, that's when you start to develop functional issues with feeding. So the palate essentially separates the mouth from the nose. And when there's a hole in that palate, that's when the child loses the ability to suction. And so when they can't suction, breastfeeding is a challenge. And they have a lot of times, they're not able to breastfeed at all. So these children will oftentimes need a specialty feeder bottle, like a Haberman nipple or a brown specialty feeder, because you can feed with the bottle without suction. That's more of a mechanical swallowing as opposed to a suction-based swallowing, while breastfeeding is suction-based swallowing and a sucking sensation. So children with cleft palate will have issues with swallowing and, and oftentimes will need a specialty a bottle feeder. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. 
If you've been thinking about giving therapy a try, BetterHelp is a great option. It's a convenient, flexible, affordable, and entirely online experience. All you do is just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist, and you can also switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. I used to think therapy was just for people who have experienced major trauma, but therapy can help you be at your best no matter what you're going through. So whether it's to learn new positive coping skills, set more realistic boundaries, or just show up as a better version of yourself, BetterHelp is here to help. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. If you want to live a more empowered life, therapy can help you get there and BetterHelp can help you. Visit BetterHelp.com slash weaning today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P.com slash weaning and get 10% off your first month. So what about when they move into solid food? So is it normally something they can have repaired by then or are they still dealing with the issues of sucking? Like if we're moving away from an era where breast milk or formula is providing the majority of nutrition. So cleft palate repair is typically done between 10 to 14 months of age. Sometimes it's pushed back a little further. Sometimes it can be done a little bit earlier, but the majority of kids cleft palate is repaired between 10 to 14 months of age. Now, in regards to introduction of solids, it all depends on when the solids are being introduced. Typically solids, and it's a moving target, you know, are introduced around six months of age, but solid feeding or pureed feeding is not based on suction at all. So it's typically given with a spoon and those kids do not have issues with eating or swallowing solids or purees of any kind. So if we're talking about like, we wait till six months of age to start solid foods, generally when babies start showing the other reliable signs of readiness to feed from six to 10 months of age, I think this is really a crucial area because parents are interested in, okay, how can my baby start learning the mechanics of using more solid foods, but we're waiting until the repair that might happen between 10 and 14 months of age. So you mentioned spoon feeding, but what about for babies that are going to be doing different textured foods, like soft, solid strips of food? If they have their dexterity and they can pick up the foods and bring it to their mouth, if it doesn't require suction-based feeding as breastfeeding was, can they succeed in self-feeding in that six to 10 month window? Absolutely. There is no contraindication if you've got a cleft palate or a cleft lip for, uh, you know, learning based feeding. You know, if they've got the mechanical dexterity, introduce food into mouth, given that the portions are the correct size, we always want to make sure that, you know, whether it's grapes, you're cutting up those grapes really small, you're cutting up, you know, longitudinally as opposed to horizontally. So as long as the size of the bolus or the size of the food is appropriate for that child's age, then yeah, there's really no contraindication. So for babies with cleft lip or cleft palates, what are some of the limitations or modifications that parents and caregivers need to make to make sure their baby grows and develops properly, especially because if that repair is going to happen, like kind of right smack dab in the middle of this critical weaning period? So essentially, it's just making sure that they have the specialty feeder so that they can have the adequate amount of liquids. And from a solid standpoint, there really is nothing in regards to preparation. It's whatever, whatever the baby's comfortable taking, whatever they like. I would just treat it like a normal child aside from the liquid part. And it really makes me happy to hear you say that because honestly, when you look at contraindications to starting solids with baby led weaning, unfortunately, people who don't specialize in this area will just rip off a list of conditions that you can't do baby led weaning with. And they always include cleft palate. So if you could just reiterate that again, what you said, like, should it be on that list? I guess like a six to 12 month old baby, can they feed themselves if they have a cleft palate? So let's put it this way. I've done over a hundred palate repairs over the 12 years I've been here. 
And we start purees and solids uh, around six months of age. And we've never had a problem, never had an issue, never had a child go down the wrong pipe or aspirate. Uh, now, granted, if they've got other syndromic conditions or if they've got other cranial nerve neuropathies that affect swallowing and dysphagia, that's a whole separate category we're talking about. So I would say syndromic cleft palate, I think you've got to be a little bit careful with. Just make sure that they're doing appropriate pacing. And uh, I would push the envelope too much with syndromic children especially if they are having issues with swallowing. But in general, non-syndrome cleft palate or cleft lip babies, you really should pursue a solid introduction at an appropriate age. Awesome. Are there any nutritional problems that we tend to see in children that have either cleft lip or cleft lip and palate or cleft palate, like any risk for micronutrient deficiency? I'm not aware of any, but it's not my area of expertise by any stretch. Yeah, I mean, the diet they're getting is the same as other babies. If it's breast milk, it's, it's breast milk in a bottle. So we don't really see any dietary sort of uh, deficiencies in children. The only thing we have seen is if the child's not given the appropriate bottle. And if they're not given the appropriate bottle and they're trying to suck a bottle that's suction-based, then they become dehydrated because they're not getting enough calories and not getting enough liquids. And, and those children get admitted to the hospital. But that's usually in the first month of life, first two months of life, where either the cleft is missed or the incorrect feeding uh, mechanism has been uh, given. So in baby led weaning, we advocate for skipping the sippy cup from a nutritional standpoint, dentition, from a oral motor language development. And we begin offering babies liquids out of an open cup around six months of age. And then once they master that, then a straw cup. But I can imagine that with the babies you're seeing, given the oral condition and limitations that are associated with sucking, what do you recommend as far as transitioning to open cup drinking for these babies who have been having to drink out of special bottles? That's actually what we do in preparation for surgery. So surgery is typically done around 10 months of age and around nine months of age, they'll meet with our craniofacial speech and swallow therapist. And at that time, the introduction, what they're introducing is a open cup. So these are babies that have just been on a Haberman or a Brown specialty feeder and they transition completely to an open cup. We actually don't do sippy cups at all because sippy cups, again, are suction-based. We also don't do straw cups as well because straw cups are also suction-based. And the other issue is after the palate is repaired, although they can generate suction in the first two, three weeks after palate repair, we don't want any pressure on that yeah. palate. We also don't want them sucking because we want that palate to heal. So usually straw cups, sippy cups, and even suction-based bottles are not recommended after. So open cup all the way. Open cup all the way. So much of this is aligning with what you would do for a neurotypical healthy child. It's nice to hear for these parents just so that they know that they've had to make all these accommodations earlier on in feeding. I feel like you're almost saying, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's going to get easier for you from a feeding standpoint as you move into the weaning period, but you're definitely dealing with the surgery. So in the post-surgical situation, you mentioned kind of needing to lay off of the pressure. Are there certain types of foods? I mean, I would assume you can't be eating, we don't even feed babies hard, crispy or crunchy foods, but what sort of like post-surgery therapy do these children meet with the speech and language pathologist, a dietitian, occupational therapist? What do we do after surgery? So surgery is typically done around 10 months of age. And I typically do my surgeries on Mondays because then I'm there Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. They're not getting some on-call doctor. And our speech is swell. And we do it as a first case on a Monday morning. So it'll be a 7.30 case, Monday morning. Surgery is typically completed. They go to uh, the floor or the ICU, depending on their, on their level of complexity. And then our speech and swallow therapist will come by around noon, between noon and 3 p.m. and reintroduce the pre-op feeding therapy they were getting. So open cup, some speech and swallow therapists recommend a syringe feeds, but majority of kids don't need syringe feeds. And it's mainly purees. We don't want anything that's sharp, gotcha. any, anything that can affect our suture line or anastomosis. The other thing we do is we actually do have kids uh, for those two weeks, we put them in no-nos. No-nos are arm guards. 
and the arm guards go along their arms so they can't bend their elbows because we don't want children bringing their hands into their mouth because that clearly has germs on them and that can affect our suture line as well. So we don't want kids sucking on their thumbs, hands in the mouth. We keep those on for two weeks. Now, if they're under direct supervision, we let them take the arm guards off to, you know, as long as they're not putting toys or any other foreign objects in their mouth. And it's usually purees for the first three weeks. Okay. After three weeks, then you can introduce uh, normal solids as age appropriate. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. So we normally in baby led weaning, if we do purees, we put it on a preloaded spoon. You put the spoon in the baby's hand and have the baby bring the hand to the mouth. I can imagine that in the few weeks post-op, if they're in these arm guards, like it may be the case where the parent would need to spoon feed. And we would obviously for the baby's safety and well-being, in that case, it would be appropriate for parents to put the spoon in the mouth. But after that, when they get out of the arm guards, can they resume you doing the preloaded spoon and bringing it to their mouth? Absolutely. Absolutely. That's what we usually have the parents. Do. We have the parents practice that before the surgery, when there is an open palate. So after surgery, when all of a sudden they're feeding out of a spoon, you know, the child's not upset. They're used to it. This is their typical way of feeding. One thing we don't also want is we don't want them sucking on the pouches because oftentimes purees come in the pouches and uh, we don't want the kids putting their pouch in the mouth and exerting suction for the first three weeks afterwards. One of the biggest feeding concerns that all moms, parents, caregivers have is whether their infant is feeding well. Like it's sometimes harder. It's not like objective measurements. Like, am I doing a good job? What are some red flags that parents at home can watch out for as signs of poor feeding in cleft babies that are just starting solids? I mean, I guess that's a good question. I think weight gain is one of the biggest ones, you know, dirty diapers, weight gain, and and looking for, uh, you know, pee diapers. As long as uh, the peas and poops are coming out fine and the child's gaining appropriate weight, then there's really nothing specific to a cleft baby. Cool. And any final words of support for our parents who are listening? Again, they'll see these lists that say baby led weaning may not be appropriate for the following babies. And it always lists cleft palate. Sometimes it says cleft lip, which you have definitely told us like that does not affect feeding at all. What can we do to help these babies succeed in self-feeding at that important transition to solid foods when I know they're probably also stressing about having the cleft palate repaired coming, you know, a few months later too? I'd say probably what happened, if I had to just guess why these sort of guidelines have come out, is I think they're lumping all cleft babies together. They're putting all the syndromic clefts with the non-syndromic clefts. And I'd say the majority of the kids we see are non-syndromic clefts, but even the syndromic kids we're seeing who have treacher collins or if they've got cruzans or if they've got vanderwoods. So all these syndromic clefts, majority of those children can feed well. But if you've got a child who's got charge syndrome, now that is a syndrome that affects the palate, can affect the lip. But in those kids, they've also got cranial neuropathy. So I would say, let's divide it into this child is syndromic, has a syndrome and has a genetic condition and a child that doesn't have a genetic condition. If it is found, if they don't have a genetic condition, then I would resume all normal sort of feeding protocols. And I would treat them as if they didn't have a cleft aside from the bottles. Mm-hmm. If they are syndromic, then let's take a deeper dive into what sort of syndromic condition they have. If it is a charge syndrome, well, then I think, yeah, in something like that, I think you're going to have to be a lot more concerned about feeding. But if it's a child who's got, you know, Treacher Collins, Cruzons, Vanderwoods, some of these other syndromes that are associated with cleft lip and palate that don't have cranial neuropathies and don't have associated dysphagia, those children I would treat as if it's a non syndromic cleft from a feeding perspective. 
Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Modi. This has been hugely informative. And I think a lot of our parents out there are just breathing a huge sigh of relief to know that this next stage of feeding is probably going to be easier than the first one. So thank you for your words. And could you tell us um, where can our audience go to learn more about the work that you and your team are doing at Cornell? Sure. If you just Google uh, Wild Cornell Medicine, uh, cleft and craniofacial team, you'll find us. If you even look up pediatric otolaryngology, because I'm in the ENT department and, you know, in the ENT department, we specialize in feeding as well as speech, as well as swallowing. So we actually run the craniofacial team at Cornell. So if you go to the pediatric otolaryngology website at Wild Cornell Medicine, you'll find our craniofacial team listed under there. And then we've got a brochure there. We've got all the information about our multidisciplinary team, which is also ACPA accredited, which is also a nice thing. It's a multidisciplinary clinic where we've got oral surgeons, speech therapists, swell therapists, genetics, uh, prosthodontists, everybody works sort of in collaboration together. So you can find more information on our website. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that episode with Dr. Modi. I think he really kind of gave maybe a sense of relief to the parents listening who have babies, certainly that have cleft lips. I think he made that very apparent that there's really no interference or problems that we would anticipate with feeding. But for the babies with cleft lip and cleft palate or just cleft palate, certainly some considerations. But just to reiterate what he said, with the appropriate therapies, there's certainly no reason why these children cannot succeed with baby led weaning. I'm going to link up all of Dr. Modi's resources, including links to where he works and his team, in case you want to learn more for your baby that may have a cleft lip or a cleft palate. And that will be on the show notes for this episode, which you can find at blwpodcast.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. Have you ever wished that you had a direct line to your pediatrician to ask all the questions that constantly crop up while parenting? We sure have. That's why we launched the Bites of Health podcast. Every morning, we'll answer a commonly asked pediatric question in five minutes or less. You can tune in while you're making your second cup of coffee or from the school drop-off line. So be sure to tune in to Bites of Health, streaming now.